Well, hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Fully Automated and Occupy IR Theory podcast. Our guest for episode 12 of Fully Automated is Maya Powell, Senior Lecturer in International Relations at Oxford Brookes University. Among other things, Maya is a scholar of early modern European history, uh, focusing on the colonial origins of the modern state. She is an editor for the journal Historical Materialism, and she's currently working on a book project entitled Jurisdictional Accumulation, an Early Modern History of Law, Empires and Capital, forthcoming from Cambridge University Press. And you're going to find Maya on Twitter at Maya underscore pal. So uh, this episode is the third installment in our occasional series uh, on Marxism in international relations. Previous guests in this series include Brian Scullis, who appeared in episode nine, talking about uh, Marxist pedagogy. And then in episode 10, we had Kevin Funk and Sebastian Sklovsky talking about uh, the sorry state of Marxism in IR and in political science more generally. But in this episode, uh, Maya is going to help us begin to think about what it might mean to apply Marxism in IR. I um, I invited her on the show after I read her recent piece uh, introducing Marxism in international relations um, in the online journal uh, EIR. And in this piece, uh, she argued that the, the contribution of Marxism in IR is to reveal uh, what other less critical approaches may contrive to hide. And that is uh, how many concepts we normally take for granted in IR, like the international itself, um, actually distract us really from from analyzing the social relations that comprise them and the history of the material conditions that shape those relations in turn. So um, as we discuss in the interview, um, there's a number of uh, even critical scholars in IR who who would eschew Marxism out of fear that, that it's a, a kind of a dogmatic approach. And that's not how Maya approaches this. Um, in the interview, you're going to hear her uh, refer uh, to a letter that Karl Marx to Arnold Ruge, which I have linked in the show notes, uh, wherein Marx uh, states, but if the designing of the future and the proclamation of ready-made solutions for all time is not our affair, then we realize all the more clearly what we have to accomplish in the present I am speaking of a ruthless criticism of everything existing, ruthless in two senses. Uh, The criticism must not be afraid of its own conclusions, nor of conflict with the powers that be. So in that spirit, Pal outlines for us what might perhaps, what we might perhaps want to call a relentless Marxism, and one that is unafraid even to examine itself and its own suppositions about the world. And the result is a Marxism that's uniquely positioned, as Maya says in the interview, to to challenge and to destabilize many of the concepts that might seem otherwise stable in IR. Not just the division between the national and the international, but maybe even more so the division between the political and the economic. And what Maya suggests in outlining this 
version of Marxism is a methodology that's capable of shattering, uh, as she says, the linear progressive narrative of the history of international relations as a discipline and opens up to us the possibility of a much more messy and brutal history, um, a history with which IR itself may even be complicit, and that is a history of empire and a history of imperial conquest. So, in fairness, uh, we cover a lot of ground in this interview, and the result is a slightly longer episode than usual, uh, but I do hope you'll stick around with us till the end. Later in the show, you're going to hear us talk about some of the implications of Maya's work for the left today, uh, whether or in what respects, for example, we can say that the state in globalization still has political capacity and how the left might conceive of this capacity as it grapples with the question of anti-capitalist strategy today. Um, Also, we look at uh, debates about xenophobia among the working class, the so-called deplorable classes, to borrow Hillary Clinton's phrase, and how these debates can distract us uh, from looking uh, not only at the nuances of working class electoral preferences, but can distract us from thinking about the normal racism of the state as it works to categorize migrant populations as undeserving of access uh, to wealthy zones and spaces within globalization. And then finally, towards the end of the interview, we're going to chat a little bit with Maya about what it's like to be an editor uh, with a left academic journal like Historical Materialism. And we're going to get a little bit into the rationale behind the journal's latest issue on identity politics. Uh, Finally, we get into Maya's current book project and why she believes that Marxists need to pay more attention to the significance of jurisdictional accumulation both in the prehistory of capitalist globalization as a, and as a specific condition shaping the play of global capitalist dynamics today. So that's enough from me. Um, in a moment, you're going to be hearing uh, my interview with Maya Pal on uh, why Marxism matters for international relations. Well, Maya, welcome to the show. I've been uh, trying to get you on here with us for, uh, for a little time now. Uh, it's really a great pleasure to, that we can finally uh, arrange this, and uh, I'm very excited to have a chance to interview you about uh, your your work as a Marxist and also as someone who is an immersed in the uh, study of international relations, much like myself. So I think um, just maybe for listeners who are not super familiar with with Marxism and, uh, and who are maybe coming uh, to this show from a non-academic perspective. Um, let's just start with the basics here. So, so Marxism, for a lot of people, is going to be something to do with the Soviet Union. Uh, maybe it's to do with the way Eastern Bloc countries were governed during the Cold War. Uh, but it seems to be a relic of history because it, it, it died or it passed away uh, way back in 1989 with the fall of the Berlin Wall. So so what is Marxism then? What is it today? And, and, and what do we miss when we think of it only in terms of that, that history of the Soviet Union or perhaps even uh, the dictatorship in North Korea? Thanks, Nick. Uh, yeah, well, very glad to be on the show and, um, and really appreciate this series that you're doing on Marxism. So um, delighted to be here. Thank you. Um, so to, yeah, to start a bit answering this question, which is obviously not an easy one, but um, I think I would want to kind of separate uh, a little bit the kind of historical dimension here. So the issue about various historical conjunctures and various historical cases and their association as being Marxist or or reflecting Marxism. Mm-hmm. 
so in a way that's kind of a whole debate to have uh, that we can come back to uh, and, and then I would want to separate a little bit Marxism in international relations or Marxism more broadly in the social sciences and what that means um, and I mean obviously from a kind of historical basis um, you know the fact the association between the Soviet Union and Marxism I think now has been quite uh, significantly criticized even in quite a lot of broadsheet newspapers sure. uh, just just associate just think that the Soviet Union was throughout its history Marxist is a fallacy there's uh, nothing in Marxism about uh, authoritarianism or about uh, massacring people or <laughs> Prisoning people, Marx never advocated neither Engels, neither most Marxists, or any you know afterward after that period. So, I mean, you know, it's interesting to see recently the Marx 200 anniversary and the amount of a very mainstream or even right-wing newspapers that uh, you know are starting to get a little bit uh, more informed about all this. And I think we're we're kind of this platitude of just us associating. Uh, Marxism of the Soviet Union is starting to fall away. But, uh, you know, there's no doubt that it's still uh, strong for many people and it needs to constantly be criticised and, and, and reviewed. Um, and then there are other cases, uh, maybe more difficult, uh, such as Cuba or North Korea, etc. China, obviously, maybe mostly. Um, and, and that's where maybe actually it's more tricky. Um, although, you know, again, um, it's this distinction between socialism, between communism as political projects, and then Marxism as more theoretical mm -hmm. uh, social science, philosophy, etc. Um, so that's where maybe I would want to kind of go for this, the rest of the question. And also, I think a caveat would be to say that if we're, you know, we're, we are, this discussion, I imagine, is from an international relations academic perspective, even if we're trying to kind of broaden it out, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but I do, you know, want to question to what extent where I would say harder on Marxism and Marxists to disentangle themselves from political events and political cases. So, you know, do, would you ask a realist or liberal scholar uh, straight away, oh, what about the authoritarian real estate or realist um, diplomats or, yeah. or uh, statesmen that are responsible for X wars, etc. You know, I mean, I don't think we do that. We no. just accept that there's realism, liberalism and all these theories and then there are historical events. But mm -hmm. you know, when it comes to Marxists, we straight away go for the, you know, the, the association. So in a way, I kind of, I think the, that question is still symptomatic of the issues that we're having to face in dissociating uh, Marxism as a uh, as an approach in its own right yeah. and, and and it is and in that sense um for me marxism is you know the most basic thing that comes to mind is this the marx quote the ruthless criticism of all that all things that exist um i was rereading this actually because i just sprang to mind i was like oh let me check <laughs> you know where he said that and if it was actually yeah. him um and it's written in this letter uh, from 1843, which is a beautiful letter. And, you know, it's always lovely to go back to some of these texts you, you haven't come across or yeah. not in a time. And he really stresses in this letter um, the problem of associating um, Marxism and socialism to a dogmatist position and that it's everything except being dogmatic. And it's about just this 
constant perpetual questioning uh, and this reluctance to accept um, that a state should be one way or that there is one truth about the world and about how states should be organized. Uh, and you think, wow, that text is so uh, relevant today, you know, and, and, and should constantly be kept at the forefront of, of any discussions about Marxism, I think. I'll try to dig up. Um, I, I know that letter and I'll, I'll try to put a link uh, to it in the show notes for listeners when, when, it, when we go live. Um, so obviously one of the main pillars of Marxism is, uh, is, 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 a, is a theoretical contribution and that's historical materialism. I quote you in one of your pieces where you say, uh, most simply, historical materialism asserts that human beings, including their relations with each other and their environment, are determined by the material conditions in which they can survive and reproduce. So obviously then we have this rich sense that, that historical materialism is supposed to be about weak, you know, maybe the, the politics and, 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 and strategies for improving human beings in these material environments. But Connecting that to international relations might be a tricky proposition because, after all, in the in in, in the world of the international, uh, at least superficially, um, there would seem to be real constraints in terms of what we can we can do for people uh, and their environments. Uh, we're divided up into these territorially limited entities uh, called states. We we organize our politics within these units and outside of them. Um, it would seem uh, our ability to to, to influence the fate of people would be quite limited. So, so what do Marxists have to say about these limits of the international and the existence of these things called states? Mm, thanks. Um, well, a lot. <laughs> um, and uh, in, interestingly, I think they've been so easily, Marxism has been so easily branded as, uh, as not being um, a priori suited to international relations. Yeah. Uh, um, but in fact, I, you know, I couldn't think, couldn't think more the opposite. Um, the whole point about obviously Marx starts from the basis of individuals, human beings, how they're related to each other, and in the process of production, but also circulation, uh, reproduction, and that's what we get to call kind of basically social property relations or relations of production, like kind mm-hmm. of these basic ways in which human beings survive um, and use the resources um, to survive and reproduce, as the quote you were you were referring to. Um, so the question is, to what extent are political organizations, political groupings, uh, political ideas necessary to that survival? And they are obviously, have always been and, and always will be part of that survival, part of that, uh, um, part of those means for reproduction. So when we say that we start with human beings, that we start uh, with their relations to each other and to the environment, we don't mean that in a sense that is uh, just physically, right? It's in a sense, it's ideologically, it's institutionally, socially, uh, etc. So uh, I think for me, there's a cl- the whole point of Marxism is to actually state that relationship between political units, political organizations, institutions, and individuals at their most material state. Um, if that really, um, if we can ever dissociate those things anyway, um, I think we do, we have to extract human beings from the political setting, but, you know, in essence, um, it's always more interrelated. So, I mean, there's kind of a problem, either you can argue that, well, Marxism is about states, 
um, as well. Or you can argue that international relations should be more about individuals. You know, so that's also the kind of two way to go about this question. So, mm-hmm. and I don't really want to go in either or. And, and kind of want to say that obviously the study of international relations has broadened so much now to include um, non-state actors. Um, so, you know, to make that argument still would seem strange. Um, and also to just say that Marxism is also about states uh, is limited. So there's something about Marxism can, I think, bring a different conceptualization of international relations. Um, and that's why it has been a bit difficult, I think, to completely be accepted as part of the canon, because it does really start from a different right. uh, uh, beginning, right, mm-hmm, if you mm-hmm. about the story of human uh, beings in their society. Um, and there's something that always made me felt interesting is that Marxism is the only approach in IR that um, starts from the name of an author. That's also something that limits it because it then gets stuck in in being associated to Marx, etc. I mean, I think in a way it's a richness to some extent because it's the legacy of Marx and and that's important and Engels and all those who followed. But but I think that also sets it a little bit apart. Um, There's also a lot of work that Marxists need to do in terms of methodology. Um, I think they're pretty strong on epistemology, on explaining how we need to start from a different standpoint, how we mm-hmm. study relations, what it means. Um, and, you know, there's a whole different vocabulary, and that's what's, why it's quite difficult to teach at, at undergraduate level, I think. Um, so it says a lot about epistemology, um, about how to understand what the world means, the different relations between individuals in that world, how many worlds are there, etc. Uh, but then in terms of methodology and how you actually do Marxist international relations, I think yeah. <laughs> well, questions remain open. Um, yeah. And I, some people have been trying to do this, and the people you've been having on the show before, actually, are, you know, are trying to also grapple with these questions right. pedagogically and, and more kind of in terms of disciplinary, you know, questions. Uh, so that's interesting. I think that's where we really need to kind of continue moving forward. Yeah, I'm. I'm still kind of thinking about how we can kind of tap into and and give, I guess, Marxism more legit, legitimacy uh, at a dis- disciplinary ne- level without falling into the traps of having to uh, be boxed in by also um, kind of requirements of political science, which is more of an issue for you in the US, I guess, than for us here in the UK. I don't know. I, 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 I hear some things about British academia these days that, that give me f- some fear uh, as well. So I know you guys are under a lot of pressure there as well. Yeah, um, no, for sure. So um, in your, um, you know, one of the reasons I uh, invited you on the show er- originally was because you had at the time just uh, published a piece in, on the website EIR. Um, where you uh, presented Marxism as a as a as a as a valid international relations theory, but also in the same breath described international relations itself as something of an illusion, and mm. I thought that was quite interesting. So I I wanted to see if I could get you to elaborate on it a little. Uh, as you describe it, the the illusion is bound up with the way we think of the domestic and international spheres as somehow separate. Um, I suppose in, in such that you know borders while they exist in a, in a very real sense for most of us on the planet, there's obvious uh, realms, um, spheres of interaction where where those borders seem to be much less of a factor, right? So, for example, in the realm of economics. So, um, 
you kind of argue then that this creates a, a double standard. Um, on the one hand, for example, in the case of immigration politics, it, dis- it dissociates, and I quote you, uh, the domestic and international levels and leads to thinking that being a migrant is the reserve of a certain people rather than a condition that we are all subjected to. But in the same breath, then, uh, this distinction between the domestic and the international also tends to naturalize uh, the transnational movements of a whole other group of people, the elite, who somehow, by virtue of the fact that they are carrying out economic activity or what falls under the epistemic category of, you know, officially acknowledged economic activity, um, they, they can sort of filter through the state quite easily. So, so how is this double standard operating from a Marxist perspective? And how, in a way, does the traditional sort of conception of international relations, the division into the domestic and the international, uh, serve to legitimize this? Mm. Yeah, good question. Um, I think this is where a lot of my interest, I think why I'm still fascinated by trying to figure out and why I've been writing these pieces on Marxism, which are kind of textbook pieces with a pedagogical uh, aim, but also Mm. to try to think a bit seriously about what it is we're doing. Um, And, you know, it's, it, it starts from the, I guess, this idea of the fetish and Marx of, you know, the fetishization of commodities, of human beings in terms of uh, labor, the value theory of labor, where uh, human be- beings become labor uh, entities that have to sell their the products of their labor to survive, right? Mm. Uh, so from that basis, you know, capitalism really, I think, expands and transforms every social relation, right? And that's what's so fundamental about capitalism and so distinct from any other mode of production, right? Is that it has this expanding, universalizing um, consequence um, and, and nothing kind of is left uh, untouched by it. Um, and in trying to kind of understand the political uh, and I guess institutional consequences of this major transformation, uh, was obviously the separation between political and economic. Um, mm-hmm. This is something that um, political Marxist, which is, we'll come back into that later, the kind of strand or school of Marxism that I was most influenced by in my beginnings, yeah. um, is to kind of really set up this distinction as fundamental to understand international relations from a Marxist perspective. And it, it's a tricky one because it's obviously only an illusion, right? There's only... Uh, Ellen Wood, obviously, um, mm. Ellen Mason Wood, uh, discusses this in detail, is most famous for uh, explaining this distinction, but it's crucial to see it as only, obviously, an appearance. Like, the, the distinction didn't happen all over, for every institution and in every case the same way, but it's the idea that um, states are politically bound, um, mm. have political borders, have political boundaries, whereas... Uh, capital can operate freely across political borders. So there's this way in which, uh, so the argument for political Marxists is that it starts in England, where they can develop a certain form of agrarian capitalism, uh, and they can expand um, throughout their empire economically, and still maintain um, a a national, national is not the great word for the UK, but... um, (laughs) a kind of internal cohesion, if you want, to their state and to their agriculture. Uh, and this enables this kind of distinction um, to expand and, and, and reproduce this model 
outward. So I, I then was trying to think, well, you know, to what extent is the international and domestic um, a distinction that can be fought in the same way, right? And, and what does it produce? So the fact, and it's kind of the, the anarchical condition, right? The basic IR argument about the rise of the modern international system, Hedley Bull, Adam Watson, etc., mm-hmm. um, to say that uh, there is an international, there is an anarchic uh, system that operates according to different rules than the political domestic system, right? And that has a lot of consequence for international law, etc., uh, and explains why it's perennial to some extent. Uh, so the idea is to kind of look at what is the origin of this separation of why have scholars come to reify this international realm versus domestic realm. Mm-hmm. And obviously capitalism is, for Marxists, the key way to understand that distinction. Um, now, I mean, I don't want to go through the kind of history of capitalism in detail, but right. I, it was I was come back to the example of migrants, I think, into today, because that's where I think it becomes really interesting. And I was asked to use an example in that piece. And hmm. usually every textbook piece on Marxism in IR will use the state. And I was like, no, I'm going to try and say and do something different. Mm-hmm. To think actually of how the distinction between the international and the domestic, um, what impact that has on certain classes or or, or uh, categories of people, um, and and then I became really interested in um, the increase in categorizations of people, right? uh, and why and how the, the the political borders can basically or have been um, uh, have have been the justification for different categories of people. So we have this multiplication of uh, types of migrants, of of types of conditions, of statuses under which people can enter or leave countries. And that, I think, is really characteristic of capitalism today. Uh, And it's something that um, is as political as it is economic. Again, I think one of the easy criticisms of Marxism that it's, you know, too economically deterministic. So, Hmm. you know, but that's something that, as Marxists, we need to constantly review uh, and be wary of. So the of migrants really, I think, epitomizes the way in which some people, where this distinction between uh, economic and political is so prescient, right? They are considered economically, an economic migrant can cross a border if they have the right skills, if they are cheap yeah. enough, if, uh, you know, if they, in terms of their commodity, you know, the trade of people, basically. So it's an it's another process in the fetishization of, of labor. Um, however, politically, you know, that distinction is remains uh, more and more um, limited if you're, you know, the conditions mm-hmm. for claiming asylum, getting refugee status, um, you know, the example in France the other day is farcical and tragic, uh, right? Uh, I don't know if you heard that hmm. uh, um, migrant being given French nationality for saving a baby. Oh, yeah, I saw that video. Um, so, you know, that's kind of where we're at. Um, so now you have to perform, you know, heroic acts of bravery to earn your French citizenship. Yeah, um, it's, um, yeah, I think that really says a lot about, I guess, subjectification, which is something I'm quite interested in, and in subjectivities in, in mm-hmm. capital today. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and, the, and this fact that, you know, migrants are becoming a real different category to citizens. Um, and, and that's really interesting. Uh, yeah. And to what extent maybe the category of citizen is becoming much more commodified than it was, I think, to, you know, 100 years ago. Oh, yeah. You can buy and sell Irish citizenship quite easily <laughs> if you have the right amount of money. Mm. Um, so let's uh, just go back maybe a second on something you were saying a moment ago when you were sort of talking about the, the, the sort of different histories uh, that IR can uh, produce and, and, and how Marxism might approach the question of the birth of the international from a, a, a different historiographic standpoint. Obviously, there's a lot of critical thinkers across the spectrum, not just Marxists, who, who would um, see the you know, who would see through the arbitrary nature of the the modern state system. Um, But you raise uh, in your piece the question of something that in IR is called the the benchmark debate. And that, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but that's to do with the question of when it was and and why it was that the academic study of international relations uh, can be said to have come into existence and uh, I know people like Bob Vitalis and others are, are doing work right now that sort of questions some of the official stories on this, you know, where IR would be traced back to 1919 when the first ever Department of International Relations was founded in Aberystwyth in Wales. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, for the, the, these scholars like Vitalis, the, the key is to sort of understand that IR at that moment was justifying its coming into existence on the basis of a need to scientifically explain how and why the world was shifting from a world of empires into a world of states. Um, But uh, Vitalis and others argue that this is actually kind of a moment of erasure, uh, where the the goal really is to to kind of disguise um, a number of sort of entrenched at this stage um, biological hierarchies and structures of power that have been put in place and to sort of cover it over with this sanitized notion of an international relations. Um, so so what's your take uh, on this argument? It, it uh, doesn't seem to be a, a, a bad argument, but uh, I, I don't know that it's necessarily a Marxist one either. So, so can you tell the listeners a little bit more why you think that benchmark debate is important? Mm. Yeah, it's it's really fundamental, and it's it's one that cannot be, be solved, right? Because mm-hmm. we're always going to be arguing about, you know, where what date and why we should even have a date. And I mean, what's been interesting is that there's been quite a lot of really interesting articles, not necessarily from Marxist or even very critical scholars. Uh, I'm just thinking maybe a new generation of English school scholars um, of historical sociology, global historical sociology mm-hmm. scholars. Or global history that have been uh, obviously, yeah. I mean, I think it's also important to say that we've been really um, uh, latecomers in this debate generally in IR, right? Um, right. So I, I think we're finally being much more critical of the history of the discipline itself and of all the concepts that we've been using. Um, so it's 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 slow, but but we're getting there. I mean, issues of Eurocentrism, obviously. Um, loom really large here mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. so the benchmark debate debate and IR I, I mean it's there's real again two big dimensions I guess one in terms of research and, and one's in one in terms of teaching so I'll talk a little bit about the research one first as that's the one you were um, discussing um, I mean I, I, I thought it was 
extremely enlightening to read uh, Vitalis um, because suddenly, you know, we as a Marxist, the assumption is that um, I think Koskinyemi made these arguments a while back about the role of uh, Weimar scholars in the early realists, um, you know, realist IR, a US IR scholarship, uh, and this kind of push uh, post World War Two to focus on states uh, and this particular vision of the world and this kind of separation between law and politics and this, you know, scientific, pragmatic approach to international relations. So that was kind of the story for me up to then. But to see this kind of much more uh, detail and depth work at the different journals that had developed a bit more, uh, a bit, mm-hmm. you know, World War II, uh, to the language that's used, and to really, I think, place this in a, you know, era of empires uh, to one that then moves towards states and to try and legitimize states as uh, the kind of unit of international relations. That for me was really fascinating and, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of problems uh, and also kind of really um, contributes to the really important argument about the fact that states are just such a tiny portion of our history. Right. And you know, and the whole of IR theory is based on these states, these units, which are meant to completely define anarchy, which are meant to define um, uh, diplomacy, peace, uh, international law, and, and they actually represent such a small part of our history. So mm-hmm. it's international relations should be about the story of empires. Those are the forms, the political forms that have most defined history. Um, so I think that's becoming, that's kind of for me the real big argument behind this work. So then, I mean, we can squibble. I mean, I think the point I was making in my piece was that, well, obviously as a Marxist, you know, what is the date that that really marks international um, or, you know, global capitalism, if you want? Right. Um, and is that, you know, the more significant benchmark date rather than the establishment of a certain journal in a hegemonic state uh, or empire at the time? So obviously, um, you know, if we think of that early 20th century period and the changes, um, I mean, we could think of the Russian Revolution, you know, the centenary has happened recently as also another really critical date and, and this kind of uh, you know, this um, first serious challenge to capitalism, right? And that may be being a more defining time for thinking of the world in different ways and not just accepting one way in which the world is going to be defined. Um, so the first kind of serious ideological challenge to capitalism. Um, I mean, otherwise, uh, you know, to, we could think of uh, decolonization movements and, again, you know, another serious big challenge to um, how states uh, are determined beyond the kind of Western uh, European quite international setting of the international legal order. So I think that's where it's been really interesting to try and bring these arguments into teaching and to develop kind of more critical um, intro to IR modules and make students think about the benchmark debate. And it's not easy because for them, they just want this set history and say, okay, when do things start? When do mm-hmm. they end? You know, uh, what's the story? And and where we come up and we say, oh, wait a minute, there are loads of different stories. And, you know, what is a historical fact? And and that's really tough for them. So, but I think the benchmark <laughs> useful yeah. to actually say, well, 
look, there are all these different dates that are used, you know, 1648, uh, you know, 1819, 1919. Um, let's think a little bit about what dates would you think would be most relevant, etc. Um so, you know, I think it's just a really, it's a good place to start with trying to think theoretically about international relations, but also critically and historically about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, so maybe to go back to, to Marxism now, which of course is a, a very broad church and it's got lots of different strands of thought within it. Um, but I get the sense reading your work that you also have a slight hesitation to embrace certain aspects of Marxism or maybe certain strands of Marxism. I don't know. I don't want to put words in in your mouth. But I think in the sense that I read you, one of your big complaints is that IR um, is perhaps too uh, universalizing in its understanding of the domain of international relations. And I think one popular criticism of Marxism uh, would be that it is kind of a Western project, a modern Western project that makes precisely the same move, except, you know, maybe I'll, I'll be it from a different direction. But, you know, theoretically, yes, it, it might understand the arbitrary nature of actually existing world politics. But in the same breath, strategically, its orientation is towards a politics of the state uh, as, a, as an essential leverage point of political transformation. So in, in one of your pieces, you seem to echo precisely that complaint when you say that IR Marxists remain too attached to the state debate. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit more on that for us? Mm, yeah, thanks. Um, I mean, I guess I wouldn't agree with the popular criticism that, um, you know, Marxism is just universalist in the other way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't think it's universalist for the reasons that I was um, explaining at the beginning in terms of Marx's, Mar- this is not Marxism, but Marx's um, position of, ruthless criticism yes. <laughs> and that the dogmatism that has been associated with uh, Marx's work but mostly with a lot of Marxism which has been dogmatic right it's mm-hmm. also and I think now there's been a lot of work to criticize the various schools and and, and especially the kind of um, early forms of, of Marxism which were much more orthodox in many ways but I don't think I think the essence of um, uh, Marx and Engels' approach, so historical materialism, is definitely not universalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, however, there's obviously big debates about um, the stages of capitalism and if you want the political uh, application of a Marxist approach. And again, this was a distinction I was making in, I think, the first question you were asking me about right. uh, you know, the political project of Marxism and the philosophical, critical, political economy project, if you want. And they're definitely related. I don't want to make a case of saying, you know, there's there are there's the political activism and, and the, the and the political debates, and then on the other side the, the kind of intellectual because Marx obviously was all about um, showing how they were interrelated and how philosophers had to change the world, right? The famous quote, not just interpret it mm-hmm. and, and vice versa. So, you know, I want to kind of obviously retain uh, some of the, I guess, the universalism that might be there is an idea of understanding the universalism of capitalism. You know, that, I think, is what might be conflated here. 
the Marxist critique of uh, an, an analysis of capitalism, which remains the most, the, you know, the richest. Um, I mean, obviously, the work of Weber is fundamental, but uh, nevertheless, I think Marx is the most transient analysis, understanding, and critique of, of capitalism as a as a new system. The fact that that becomes a universalizing system, the only or universalizing system mode of production um, that I think the world has known, that's what's really, I guess, crucial. And because capitalism is universalizing, then any response to it, in a way, for Marxists, for some Marxists, need to be as well. So mm-hmm. the fact um, states have to go through a period of industrial capitalism to then reach a period of state socialism and then finally a period of communism. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's, that was Marx and Engels' position at the time. Now, I, you know, I don't think that really applies anymore and it's not um, a position that I would hold and I don't think mm. many many Marxists hold either still today. Mm-hmm. But, um, but there is something about the fact that capitalism has become made itself universal uh, and is found everywhere in the world means that any I guess systemic or structural response to it is going to have to take into that into account um, so just basically the, the, what that means is that only having localized um, responses or struggles or resistances to capitalism is probably not going to shake up the whole thing right. then I mean we get into a debate about how do we transition out of capitalism? Um, and um, I mean, maybe that's a bit for a separate question, but I'll just come back to this point about <laughs> why I say that um, uh, IR Marxists are too attached to the state debate. Um, yeah. Because um, I mean, I think, you know, and I don't want to have this kind of uh, overbearing statement that puts everybody in the same. In, uh, in the same category, which would be, you know, really not reflective. As you said, there are so many schools of Marxists, and I think it's great because it really shows the richness and and the uh, the way in which it's it's um, become one of a you know um, the main IR theoretical strands. It's not just a marginal critical approach, right? right? Um, maybe my, you know my vision is a little skewed, <laughs> but. Um, you know, I think it is now a major area of research, um, and there are a lot of people who I think do Marxist work, but uh, wouldn't identify as Marxist as well. I think that's quite right. important. But um, I, I think a lot of the core IR Marxists are still talking a lot about the state and the state debate, uh, and although that's moving, um, and now there's a kind of more move towards historical sociology, and I said the study of empires and other forms of political organizations, a lot of work uh, in political economy around regions and uh, and more kind of case studies and, and area studies. Um, but when it comes to kind of theorizing international relations, um, I think, you know, that we're still not yet coming to grips with the fact that the state has only existed for a very short period of time. And how we have um, a Marxist approach that really takes that seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I take uh, seriously as well. I mean, not to cut across you there, but I take seriously as well that the fact that the biggest Marxist movements on earth have been taking place in in, in parts of the world that are not, you know, centered in the western universalist gaze so to speak you know like throughout latin america you know the biggest marxist party in the world is in india 
uh, you know, to, to the extent that it's actually Marxist could be questioned, I suppose, you know, in China, you know, these are all kinds of very bottom up phenomena that haven't necessarily, uh, you know, been imposed by a Marxist universalizing gaze <laughs> for all that, you know. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, I think it comes back to that issue of epistemology or and methodology to some extent. Yeah. It, does being a Marxist mean that you can understand everything that's happening in the world at the same time? No. Right. You know, I think it does. <laughs> I guess I'm definitely not on the structuralist side of Marxism. So, yeah, you know, yeah. the others well, would, would want to argue that we have to have this big structural overall systemic view. But I, I don't think that that makes any sense and, and, and is historically uh, viable. Um, so at the same time, you know, what's useful about Marxism is to try and take that distance from things and from views about the world uh, and to look, you know, to see some, obviously, some patterns um, and some continuities. Mm. But uh, I'm personally more interested in the ruptures, right, and in the inconsistencies and in breaking down uh, the linear a progressive narrative of the history of international relations, uh, and uh, and that applies to the present as much as to history. Right? This isn't something that, that you know those two studies aren't separate. Um, so, yeah, I I think I don't think we can have a Marxism that explains everything and solves and applies to every case. Right. Um, I, I think we have to think from specific vantage points. Um, with specific uh, theoretical and methodological aims, mm-hmm. state those aims and be honest about them and be humble. Um, I think a lot of my issue with Marxists is that they, uh, they, yeah, they think they can explain everything, and that's as much in kind of you know everyday political commentary as yeah. it is in theory. Sure, um, sure. A bit of humility and just um, you know, being clearer on on what it is you want to achieve in, in a particular piece of research or in an argument uh, about the world. Um, well, let's uh-huh. stay with uh, with that kind of idea for a second, and that that question of humility, because of course, I think one of the areas where where maybe that uh, message, that argument, um, might be be relevant is uh, certainly pertains to the Marxist standpoint on on globalization and. The question of the state, uh, the question of the state as a vehicle, as a pl- or as a platform um, for for working class resistance, and um, I I think you know reading your work, you're you're a little bit you know careful on 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 this uh, question of the state. I don't I don't think you're necessarily uh, rosy eyed um, about um, its prospects for uh, emancipation. Um, you know, at, at the worst, you say our continued belief in in the national system stokes the fire of racism and xenophobia uh, by maintaining the illusion that that states can control and shape economic conditions of labor. And I suppose two questions stand out for me here, and I and maybe I can present them to you uh, separately. Um, we can get to the xenophobia question in a second, but but first. Uh, just to address the question of the state as a as an entity of power in globalization itself, I wonder to what extent you think the state has been disempowered by globalization, and and whether there's equally a danger in uh, sort of detaching our understanding of globalization from the state altogether. I I don't want to put words in your mouth, but in your piece you have this kind of argument that. 
transnational corporations operate according to a legal space where, where you know, the nation state has no purchase, right? And, and I think that is a controversial um, argument within Marxism. Um, I think there's a number of Marxist scholars, uh, like Leo Panitch not least, who, who would uh, argue that that itself is something of an illusion because the state has really been central. The tutelary capacities of the state have been central to uh, the elaboration of globalization in the first place. So if that's the case, if, if shall we, you know, to, to, to sort of put perhaps a, an under-nuanced spin on it, uh, if the forces of globalization, if the forces of neoliberalism are wielding the power of the state, then, then why shouldn't Marxists too? Yeah, absolutely. Well, of course, we, you know, we need to wield the state. Um, again, it's going to be tricky to kind of um, marry both a political um, analysis and strategy, if you want argument here, with a, a more theoretical one, but I'll do my best. Huh, um, yeah. So I guess the, the tricky question isn't whether we the state exists or not anymore, whether we need to in, you know, acknowledge it or not. It's to what extent we can or to what extent and in what ways, in what domains, in what areas, is it more or less powerful, right? In what areas of international relations does it actually have leverage over corporations or over international organisations? I mean, that's, the, the for me, the interesting question here. Um, so hmm. my work on, you know, I'm not a political economist in the economics, um, economics, economic sense, if you want. Um, my, work, <laughs> <laughs> um, my work has been much more on international law, on global governance, uh, and those aspects of globalization. Right? So, in, you know, that probably explains a bit my I guess, um, frustration with um, too much emphasis on the state. At the same time, I'm completely, you know, I, I would never make the argument that neoliberalism or globalization is about the end of the state. I mean, there's been loads of really good analysis, not just in the Marxist camp, obviously I'm thinking of Wendy Brown, but um, other people as Ian Brough looking at the authoritarianism uh, right. necessary in neoliberalism. Right, right? So, of course. I, I, Definitely don't want to kind of, and I think those arguments are really valid. However, um, when you look at uh, various legal mechanisms that are defining uh, U.S. hegemony or imperialism, whichever you want to choose, yeah, um, yeah. today uh, those really put a different spin on understandings of the state, which are kind of stuck in a post-World War II idea of the state versus the international. Uh, and again, it's been coming back to this illusion between the international and the domestic, right, which is meaningless in if you look at the intricacies of international law today, um, mm -hmm. whether it's in the domain of free trade agreements or in the domain of uh, even to some extent international criminal law uh, or in the domain of um, investment law, which is particularly complicated. I mean, you really have a, set, uh, a very broad set of actors involved, financiers, um, uh, negotiators, kind of ad hoc tribunals, um, bankers, mm -hmm. uh, lawyers, which are operating in a sphere that nobody has a clue about. You know, I'm just thinking of the WTO or, or mm -hmm. various networks around these organizations, just in corporations themselves. Um, the cottage industries involved in what um, my work has been most significantly 
significantly on is extraterritoriality. Uh, so the U.S. is the leader in applying its own laws uh, to cases occurring outside its jurisdiction. Right. So that's what extraterritoriality is. Mm-hmm. And we see this. Uh, so basically, uh, you might have heard or people might have heard a lot about uh, European banks uh, and even the European Union complaining uh, against the US and its extraterritorial application of its laws. And this also applies to a lot of the uh, sanctions against Iran, North Korea, etc., which are having um, implications for European corporations. So, you know, that's a really interesting area to look at the way in which the state has been transforming um, in the kind of post you know, 90s, I guess, 80s, 90s era, uh, and the various networks and and, um, uh, relations, social relations, you know, to be Marxist about it, uh, that have developed in there, the different classes and the the different agents, Mm -hmm. basically, which is more what I'm interested in Marxism, and I think has been not looked at enough, is agency of specific groups of actors, of specific domains and areas um, of international relations. And then it becomes really interesting and difficult, right, to have this kind of one, um, uh, you know, uh, one trick argument um, about the state. Um, I mean, in some cases, when you look at uh, human rights, for example, which have been developing to some state through by the state and in other cases, transnationally. Um, And, you know, so, for example, the TTIP protests, so the trans... Um, trade and investment partnership, which has more or less fallen apart, but was, you know, top news for two or three years or something, uh, oh. I guess. And there were big protests in Germany, uh, but also in the UK, France, uh, at various areas, you know, a kind of at a basic citizen level, a civil society level, but also you know, in the kind of lobbying uh, EU level, you know, quite of a, to some extent, a middle class protest, obviously. But, you know, there are a lot of concerns about encroachment of corporations uh, and of the US on what would seem to be sovereign national um, uh, prerogatives. And uh, this kind of rise of uh, ad hoc tribunals and and the fact that states can sue, uh, corporations can sue governments. And, or you know evade national jurisdictions etc so this is you know um, incredible implications in terms of tax and and uh, regulations food production etc so you know there you see kind of a resurgence of uh, popular sovereignty in a way of a desire to to have a more bounded state that right. applies itself to its own jurisdiction and that and that remains sovereign in, in essence but in other cases that I've been looking at, uh, for example, uh, human rights issues, uh, which are also kind of uh, can speak to everyday people's concerns about uh, labor rights and um, uh, various criminal activities by corporations, then there, in that case, there's a move towards a more transnational conception of justice. Yeah. Right? And at a kind of civil, basic civil society level, as much as a, an institutional NGO, you know, maybe even international organization level. Um, so there's various projects such as the Extraterritorial Obligations Project, 
which unites loads of lawyers and academics to try and basically provide a place in which the state and corporations are, are more responsible for the transnational activities of corporations. So I think it's just interesting to see how there are constantly these tensions and these different ways in which this mm-hmm. argument state versus globalization is pulled and to just have one view about it is, you know just makes no sense and it really depends on the area business right. and human rights is another very interesting area in which there's been a lot of um kind of citizen activity but also more and more academic activity to try and think of how these two worlds collide or, or can you know be used to more emancipatory purposes yeah, that's a really good answer. Thank you. I uh, I really appreciate that. I, I think um, it's a it's, it's a nuanced uh, position for a complicated question. Um, you know, I was just as you were talking there, I was thinking about uh, you know the debates in Greece um, after the uh, Ohi uh, vote mm. and uh, just how complicated that was. You know, the, the you know the, the ver- some very well-intentioned and, and frankly, you know, really fantastic critical minds arguing to detach Greece from the euro and the euro European Union um, on the one hand and just, uh, you know, all, all, at the same time, um, another group of people recognising just how tremendously complicated a proposition that would be and in the face of so many of the types of phenomena you've just been delineating, um how um how speculative a venture that would be right you know to to uh to throw a country with uh such weak sovereignty uh such a weak economic starting point into the uh sharks <laughs> of global capitalism would be quite uh an uncertain uh gambit i think so another um sort of aspect just following this kind of globalization on the state question though and i think it's one that you 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 you've been anxious to 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 touch on in in your writing um concerns the sort of uh how should we say the um the 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 the, um, affinity between um a more statist politics and the uh traditions of xenophobia and racism Mm. and i'm wondering of course, you know, we have to reckon with that and grapple with that. Um, how to balance this question of of leveraging the state um, and this risk of making a pact with the forces of reaction? Uh, there does seem to be a, a question mark currently, uh, let's, let's be honest, hanging over the working class as, in, in the round, and, and uh, that's a controversial thing to say. Uh, but, uh, you know, the extent to which votes for Trump and Brexit were, were motivated by xenophobia and nationalism is a, is, a, is a question that's on the table these days. Um, troublingly, it would seem that uh, at least many who, who voted for Trump and Brexit were, were those who might otherwise typically have voted for the left. Uh, they were the poor. They were the working class. Uh, we do know that Trump flipped a small but significant number of states in the Midwest where According to the New York Times, whites without college education are the majority. And I appreciate that that's a controversial point. There's a lot of people who, uh, you know, including Lee Jones, who, who's a, a, an international relations scholar, you know, he's done some blog posts on that, um, on disorder of things and places like that. But, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton uh, herself kind of encapsulated the idea uh, when she uh, sort of declared the working class to be a basket of deplorables. But I guess there's complications to this, right? Because, you know, these same people who voted Trump are, you know, surprisingly, again, turning out in massive numbers for uh, 
the West Virginia teacher strike and, and in other places around the United States, other um, states where the, the so-called Rust Belt states or the red states where where there the, the were large numbers of support for Trump have have been doing these wildcat strikes recently in, in the in the uh, educational sector. So what are we to make of these kinds of really puzzling ambiguities? They're very frustrating from an analytical point of view. Things don't seem to be behaving as they should be. Were the voters who flipped to Trump really victims of an illusion of of state power? Or, 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 or were they, in a sense, desperately just trying to express some kind of agency to hold back the tide of globalization? Mm. Well, I think we have to be a bit careful, maybe, with, you know, making these swift arguments about the working class suddenly being all Trump voters. Um, I mean, I think there's really interesting work by Charlie Post, but also um, uh, Robert Brenner, um, on actually the fact that um, Trump's victory wasn't so much uh, the outcome of this, you know, sudden rise of a nationalist xenophobia of white working class, uh, but actually uh, the ensemble of, of other uh, phenomena, uh, the fact that uh, there was a, a, an important middle class vote uh, that went to Trump, that uh, a significant portion of Obama or, or people that would have voted Democrat just didn't go out to vote at all. Right. And the fact that uh, there's always been a significant portion of white male workers who are voting Republican for about 40 years, they are. <laughs> so, you know, I don't think this is suddenly some new thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's always been a reactionary uh, aspect. I mean, I think, yeah, the, the, the analysis, and I'm no expert on analysis of, of uh, you know, the voting in either the Trump uh, situation or Brexit. But I think in both cases, looking a little bit closer, and I think the same as in Brexit, the situation where straight away an argument was made about uh, uh, this kind of a very patronising argument, actually, about um, a, a working class um, uh, being lulled into sovereignist arguments, etc. Um, mm-hmm. And I think really unfair. Mm-hmm. Um and, and doesn't reflect actually what came out afterwards in terms of the pockets of a middle and upper class conservative, you know, rural area votes for Brexit. And that's something I've, I experienced personally living in Oxford. And the day <laughs> I was in a cafe and I could hear these certainly not working class people just raging about how happy they were and it was the happiest day of their lives, etc. And so, you know, that, that's I experience obviously that's no but it's also what I read in terms of those areas right. especially kind of around the southeast much more of a conservative upper class vote than than originally thought so you know that's a kind of first big caveat here mm-hmm. I think the point is to maybe also say something about how easy class is being used by a lot of commentators um, and also more you know in a more, more mainstream academic setting uh, without you know, the necessary historical materialist approach that right. comes with that yeah. analysis of class, mm-hmm. right? So you suddenly make these sweeping arguments about uh, a class struggle, class relations, without actually thinking, okay, this has to be looked at historically, this has to be looked with a whole other set of social institutions and, and the um, behaviour of those individuals in other areas of um, of either electoral voting or, you know, social 
setting. So, you know, there's something there about um, a misuse of, of class, I think. Um, but nevertheless, there's obviously a turn to the right. I mean, now, um, you know, I'm an editor for historical materialism, and I've mm-hmm. seen serious conferences taking on the right, um, having lived in Europe for the last uh, 30 or so years and having seen and experienced that rise of the right, and it's undeniable. Um, mm-hmm. What comes with it is this nationalism and often, unfortunately, a xenophobic, racist uh, nationalism. Now, you know, how to explain that, um, how it's linked to uh, the past of Europe um, is not something I think we can go into. But I I was interested in it in terms of how I think the state requires this discourse to legitimise itself, to legitimise its political borders in the face of, you know, capital's um, free economic, if you want, dimension. Right. And this need to categorize certain people, i.e. migrants, as n- undeserving of a particular space, a particular territory. Right? And to put people, you know, to, to categorize people in, as, in, um, as deserving of different rights um, enables the state to justify and to legitimize its existence in a globalizing world that has you know, that has been questioning its existence, to say the least. So I think that's where it's become really visceral and quite critical, where there is now, you know, there's always been racism. There always, I hope not always, but that's not, that's nothing new in that. People are always scared of others and it's about how they, you know, deal with that fear and et cetera. But what is new is this, a need of certain state actors, certain state officials, uh, of a ruling elite, of being able to be in control of both a corporate capitalist dimension, and we've talked about how the legal aspect is important to that, as well as keeping a certain control over the state. And it's a capitalist class trying to basically have its hands in both those pies. Right, Uh, So, yeah, I mean, it doesn't look like it's anywhere close to getting better i think um you know there are i think signs and we we're going to maybe talk about corbyn and uh, you know that might be something to bring in to what extent corbyn is a sign of a different kind of politics in europe um to some extent you know bernie sanders and as mm-hmm. you said strikes happening across the u.s are phenomenal and mm-hmm. the organization that is really um uh, you know really source of inspiration and and they're winning you know the small battles but they yeah. are yeah um getting concessions. And, and I mean, that's always been part of capitalism. Capitalism has never just been this crushing of the working class, right? There's always been periods of, you know, allowing the working class certain advantages and privileges so that it kind of rests. And so that's, you know, not unusual either. And we have to be wary of, of these little victories in the overall scheme of things. But <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I don't know if I can conclude on this point or not, but... <laughs> No, that's fine. Uh, Maya, uh, we're, we're um, working our way slowly here towards the end of the show, I think, at this stage. Um, but you mentioned a minute ago that you uh, are an editor with historical materialism. And, and given that uh, you guys just had a big issue come out yesterday on, on identity, uh, I, I don't think I could let you go uh, without uh, asking you a little bit about uh, how you came to be a editor with historical materialism and what kind of work you've been doing uh, with the journal 
and um, whether you have any sort of like inside scoop for us on uh, on on the process of how uh, an issue like the one that came out yesterday has come together. Wow, yeah. Um, so I've been an editor with HM for nearly three years now. Um, um, I got invited, uh, quite informal process, but got invited. There is then a, a more formal process of how we uh, get new members, etc. cetera, um, mm. kind of attend a meeting and you see if it goes well and then you write a letter explaining what you want to contribute and, and you get accepted or not. Right. So um, <laughs> that's just a very kind of uh, technical aspect. Um, it's been... Well, it's been so much. Um, there's not not enough time for me to go into it in detail. It's been really a phenomenal experience. I mean, I guess historical exper- uh, materialism is a bit set aside from other academic journals. I mean, we're yeah. peer reviewed, uh, like any other academic journal, but we read everything. <laughs> so it's a lot of work. Um, yeah, we don't have of certain you know editors being assigned certain articles it's the whole board reads every article and has a say and a vote on every article so that's quite an unusual process and obviously very time consuming but i think it it's really interesting and it helps us shape a little bit what we want to do well i mean i guess what i want to say is hmm. uh, we've been also there's a lot of things that needed to change and evolve with HM, notably the gender composition. Hey, yeah. um, it's been notoriously male-dominated. Uh, that's changing. Uh, we've got a really great set of new women on board. Um, we also have an issue of diversity, uh, you know, ethnic diversity, and that's slowly also improving, but we're still, you know, majority white. Uh, Western group. So, you know, there's a lot to work on, and the identity politics special issue was part of that. Um, so, there's two editors, well, originally just one editor from the HM board, and the three other editors were guest editors. Right. So, Alia Cooper, uh, Shruti Aya, and Dalia Jibrial. And Dalia has now joined actually the HM board. So, um, again, it's been trying to move Marxism outside of its you know, comfortable boundaries and to try and confront it with uh, debates that are happening today, everyday activist debates, you know, this lot of pieces are about what it means um, to be involved in anti-racist politics today and some really important issues are being discussed there. So it's trying to move out first of the kind of orthodox Marxist um, framework, but also moving out of... Um, uh, who has been writing and and who has been kind of legit the authorities in this in these circles? Yeah, it's so, uh, so exciting. I, I have to say, I I haven't uh, really been able to get my teeth into that issue that came out yesterday just yet. But uh, just even like uh, a, a scan or a glance over them, that just seems like the, the 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 level of writing and the the nuanced positions on you know, identity politics emerging within neoliberalism or symptomatic readings of identity politics, but also very faithful readings to the idea of emancipation and liberation being projects that are going hand in hand. I thought, you know, it's, it's, it seems to be very strongly present in the pieces in the journal as a whole. Mm, yeah. And I have to say thanks to the contributors and the editor, the guest editors who did, you know, it's been a two year, I think, process. Wow. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. So, you know, the peer reviewers, etc. it's been, a lot of work. <laughs> let's uh, let's just um, maybe have one last question. Uh, I, I really just want to ask you about your own research and, and what you're up to right now. Yourself as a scholar, I know um, because you were 
uh, kind enough to send it to me that your your work uh, your book prospectus uh, currently is on uh, the concept of jurisdictional accumulation and uh, that's a that's a quite a concept to to take on um, you uh, are interested in in empires uh, you're interested in how empires spread juridical forms and I think you're interested in how um, the particular sort of jurisdictional modes, if I can use that term, I don't think that's a term you use, but uh, uh, spread specific and different models of what you call social property relations around the world. And and that is a really fascinating point, um, especially, I guess, in terms of like contemporary debates about varieties of capitalism and things like this. So I wonder, just to sort of close this out today, would you mind sharing us a little bit about where you're going to go with this work, um, how these different models uh, of uh, social property relations affected the development of the empires, the relations with each other, and, and perhaps even still shape the way capitalism functions today. Yeah, thanks um, for the opportunity, Nick. Um, so, yeah, this was my PhD thesis, which finished five years ago. So it's going back to that work and basically refocusing it and reframing it in a, in a bit more kind of coherent and targeted way mm-hmm. um, and it's it's part I guess of this what I was discussing before about as you say um, shifting away from states and from um, you know the, this reification of the international system as being determined by state relations and to think about well what was happening just before the emergence of the modern state hmm. and put back the you know, put a spotlight on the early modern period, so roughly 1400, uh, 1800, um, and to look at what was going on there. And the kind of, you know, there are different narratives I'm trying to pick at. So there's the kind of mainstream narrative that uh, I'm having a go at, which just sees this kind of evolution from um, a more primitive international law, Spanish empire, to uh, uh, still slightly less defined, but kind of becoming more territorially fixed French period to then the British era of, you know, the consecration of liberal progressive state formation, if you want. So trying to obviously break with that and look at, you know, all the empires in the early modern era and how they interacted, um, how the story of the liberal state is much more complex um, and, uh, and also determined by this period. Um, but it's also picking up Marxist history, which also has been a little bit teleological and progressive on this aspect, um, and I think can, can gain a little bit from looking more at the legal aspects. Uh, so jurisdictional conflicts is um, a concept or you know a focus that Ellen Wood uh, actually discussed quite a bit in her understanding of um, um, internet, internal relations in France and in uh, England to try and understand actually their differences and their different approach to jurisdiction. And it's just been, a, I mean, I've been obsessed with jurisdiction for quite a few years now and trying to really understand what it means in relation to the concept of authority, uh, the concept of the state, basically. Right. Uh, and to try and see if it, something more can be done in IR about it. So there's obviously a lot of work in international law about jurisdiction, and there are very kind of technical, if you want, definitions, and then there are more critical and interesting ones. And the work in critical international law has been really fascinating and much, I think, well in advance of a lot of stuff in IR, uh, historically and, and in terms of understanding of the legal order. So I've been kind of really uh, pumping on that, if you want, mm. and... Uh, 
and trying to, to translate this a little bit more for IR audiences. Yeah. Uh, and 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 look at it more also from the angle of the transition to capitalism, uh, and just looking at specifically how, for example, at the moment I'm really into uh, the role of diplomats in the 17th century England, and how the transition to capitalism actually shaped diplomacy in wow. that period. Uh, yeah. So back to really core, you know, realist or English school mainstream themes of diplomacy <laughs> yeah. and actually well, wait a minute, there's actually a really more interesting story here about the social relations around diplomatic differences. And and uh, in the case of England, for example, the role of parliamentarians in diplomacy, mm. whereas this wasn't happening in, in other states. So there's a lot going on in the book. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's not going to be a straightforward, easy story to summarise. But, um, yeah, I'll, I'll probably leave it there for now. And, and uh, yeah, I look forward to being able to share a little bit more about that um, when it comes out next yeah definitely well listen we on behalf of the listeners let me wish you the best of luck at that i think you've given us a, a great little taster of the the kind of approach you're you're adopting there and i think once again it's a reminder of um the utility of uh, a political marxist approach uh, which i think you know obviously you're you're a, an, an ellen wood fan and uh, i think um we, we've been um interviewing a lot of people who would who would be very keen on uh, on that kind of approach on, on the show so uh, you're you're definitely among friends here uh maya let me uh just thank you for for coming on the show um and for sharing with us uh your insights uh, about your work and uh about the state of global capitalism you'll keep in touch and maybe we can uh, have you on the show again when the book is out great i would love that thank you so much <laughs> Perfect, Maya. Thanks so much.